I ask the rest of you to join me in opening your Bible to Luke chapter 6, the gospel according to Luke, and we'll be in the sixth chapter this morning. And I open by talking to you about knives. Knives are awful. They kill. Knives are wonderful. In the right hands, they restore. Spiritually speaking, this morning, we're going to observe both happening as the knife of God's holy law is in the hand of Jesus. And as Jesus wields the knife of God's holy law, it will first slay us. And then it will bring restoration. Knives are awful. And knives are wonderful. God's holy law is awful. And God's holy law is wonderful. And Jesus uses it lawfully, helpfully, and He uses it for our benefit, even though we'll feel some pain along the way, even as we're slain and as we sense some restoration. And to, uh, to, to see this, we are on location, so to speak. Uh, this is a hillside uh, around the Sea of Galilee, and this is known as the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at different portions of it as we work our way through Luke's Gospel account. And uh, Jesus is there instructing his close disciples. He's there instructing more broadly the more broad group of disciples. And there's also a crowd involved. And so he is um, communicating with everyone in one way or another. But one thing he certainly is doing, he's equipping his core group of disciples before they are sent out so they might think rightly about who he is. So they might think rightly about who they are. So they might think rightly about what Christ is going to do. And so this morning, I hope you're prepared to be slain uh, and feel the pain of that, only to find yourself needing the gospel, only to find yourself treasuring the gospel, only to find yourself then seeking guidance for how to live based upon what God's law would say as a believer. So that will be what we'll do this morning. Matthew chapter 5 is the parallel account. Uh, You may want to find a marker uh, and go to Matthew 5 as well, because we'll go there at least a couple of times. Uh, My plan this morning for simplicity would be to take two passes through our text. So we're going to look at verses 27 to 36, and we're going to pass through it one time, um, the death pass, if you will, uh, and then we're going to pass through it another time, uh, the restoration pass. Because really, both are accomplished by what Jesus does. So, uh, the killing words of Jesus, if you will, and the restoring words of Jesus, uh, that's point one and point two, keeping it really simple. So, number one, the killing words of Jesus. Let's jump right in. Verse 27 says, quoting Jesus, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And we're going to just park it there for for a bit. First thing to recognize, obviously we're going to get to the part where Jesus says, love your enemies. But the first thing to recognize is where Jesus says, but I say to you, and if we're only looking at Luke's account, 
we probably don't quite see the bigger picture of things. That's why sometimes it's so helpful to have a harmony of the Gospels where you can kind of see how things fit together and, and, and unfold. Luke doesn't record everything. Matthew doesn't record everything. John doesn't record everything. Mark doesn't record everything. But we have it all recorded. So why not pay attention to those things? And when Jesus says, but I say to you, According to the flow and the chronology of things, it's right after Jesus says in Matthew 5, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, and so if you'd like to, you can write it in your margin, Matthew 5, 43, you have heard it said, uh, you shall love your neighbor. And then, then we have our verse, but I say to you, that's really the point of contrast. If you were standing there, if you were sitting there on the, on the hillside, you have all heard it said, love your neighbor. You've all heard the law. You've all heard from Leviticus 19 what God's holy law requires. Love your neighbor. And then Jesus says, but I say to you. And that gets your attention. Is Jesus going to contradict the law? Is Jesus going to lessen the law? Is Jesus going to somehow say that's not relevant? Well, he's not going to say any of those things. He's not going to suggest by saying, but I say to you, the law is bad. He wouldn't do that. Scripture says that the law is good. He's not going to undermine that. Is he abolishing the law? No, he's going to say he didn't come to abolish the law. Is he lessening the strictness of the law? Sort of like, you know, Moses is grumpy. Jesus is nice. You know, Moses, man, he was mean. And God was mean through Moses. You heard it said, but I say, because I'm nice and he wasn't. That, that, that doesn't seem to be the idea at all. Although some people have actually concluded that very thing. What's he doing? I think surely he's bringing out the true intent of God's law to begin with. What did God mean when he said, love your neighbor? And then all of a sudden, that just becomes like a technicality. Well, we all know what God's law says, but that allows us to define neighbor certain ways. And we also know that God at times told us in battle as Israelites to wipe certain people out. And so, you know what, we just kind of, we, we like the people who are like us. We love those people. We love people who are in our clan. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. He's not going to undermine that. If anything, he brings clarity to that. But I say to you, regarding your misunderstanding, regarding the way you guys have, have taken that and sort of hijacked that, but I say to you, love your enemies. He's not turning it on its head. He's bringing out the true intent. And he will elsewhere explain who a neighbor is. A neighbor is anybody who has a need whether they're part of your clan or not, whether they're part of your religion or not. But surely that's the intent to begin with of what Leviticus 19 got at. Love your neighbor. Love anybody in need. Treat them like God treats people, helping them regardless. He's kind. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. But I say to you, Jesus isn't undermining the law. He's not changing the law. He's if you will, undermining their narrowly defined technicality that somehow got them off of do, from doing what the law of God said to begin with. Here's my question for you. 
When Jesus says, love your enemy, is that good news to you? When Jesus, in essence, is saying, love your neighbor, true, true way to do it, is that the gospel? A lot of times people take the Sermon on the Mount like that kind of command and say, that, that's the gospel. We need to be a gospel-centered church. And we need to be about the gospel. The gospel is of first importance. And the gospel is love your neighbor. The gospel is love your enemy. The answer to that is no, it's not. That's not the gospel. That'd be like saying God's law is the gospel. God's law is not the gospel. Not in a million years is it the gospel. Jesus is not giving them the gospel here. He's reiterating. He's emphasizing. He's clarifying. He's stating the law is what he's doing, which isn't good news. What does the law do? The law gives life and encouragement and it's awesome. It's so good to be affirmed because we all love our neighbors, right? No, it slays us. It takes us out. He's not the kinder, gentler, let me just, you know, kind of get rid of all that law stuff guy. If anything, I think he's just bringing clarity to the true intent. But if anything, you could argue that he's ratcheting it up and making it more intense. And some people take it that way. Maybe that's how you take it. But for sure, he's not lessening it. He might be making it more intense. You're supposed to love your neighbor. I'm going to tell you something. You don't just love your neighbor. You love your enemy. Jesus didn't come to make the law easier. He didn't come to bring the new law that we can all get in under. If anything, and I actually don't think this, but if anything, he made it harder. I don't think he made it harder. He just made it clear because it had become unclear. But never mind that. Here is the law of God in the mouth of Jesus like a sword, and it slays everyone. Because none of us keep the law of God. This is how Paul argues in Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we don't keep his law. No one does good, no, not one. Good in what sense? In the sense of when you stand before God and his holy law, we stand slain. And by the way, if you're uncomfortable with this image of Jesus playing with knives, it's just an analogy. Um, <laughs> but actually, it's a biblical analogy, and it's not a knife, it's a sword. Read Revelation 19. It's metaphorically used as coming out of his mouth. He has a sword to judge the nations. And Jesus is certainly judging here when he does this. I don't love my neighbor the way he says. You don't. No one does. No one has. Not to mention enemies. pretty hard it's really hard it's not good news we'll get to the good news though but how are we going to understand the good news if we don't understand the bad news it's no wonder we we don't really know what the gospel is because we think jesus is the kinder kinder gentler moses who made it easy to get in under his watch it's no wonder we think the gospel is god helps those who help themselves 
Jesus did no such thing. He did no such thing. And that's bad news taking us to good news, taking us to the gospel. But how about this? If we don't understand the law of God and Jesus' relationship to the law of God, we will never understand the good news of God in the work of Jesus. So we've got to have this clear. We've got to have this straight in our heads. Now, from there, he just plunges the knife deeper. Okay? I mean, it's just an insult to injury, if you will. He goes through, and he says in verse 20, 28, we'll just go through this quickly, where he unpacks it. Bless those who curse you. Have fun with that. Uh, pray with those, uh, for those who abuse you. Uh, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And I, I can't handle it. I'm feeling so bad because I'm not going to be able to do any of these things um, the way I'm supposed to, according to God's law, which is with perfect motive, perfectly all the time. Now, we're going to come back to those details, and they're really important, but we're going to come back to them later. I just want you to drop down to verse 35. So on the second pass, we'll cover the other, other things. But drop down to 35, if you would, where it says in chapter 6, but love your enemy. So he's back to the opening command. So all that other stuff was just a, a, a unpacking and elaboration. Love your enemies, and then notice what it says in 35, and do good. Does that sound like the gospel? No, the gospel isn't do good. It's law. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. That, that, that's work salvation right there because that's what the law would be. If you do the right thing, there's going to be the right kind of reward. So if you do good, you'll have a reward that's great. And then keep reading and you will be sons of the Most High. Let's just make it clear, if you do good and, and you do the law, then you're going to be sons of God. That's not good at all. That's quite a predicament. Now, I can self-righteously put on a show on the outside, but really? No. No. How about verse 36? Be merciful. There's another command. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. You know what? If you just act like God does all the time, everything will be good for you. Have a nice day. Cling to that on your deathbed. As long as you've just always morally been like God your whole life, He will accept you. It's awful that we label that good news. Because it's not good news. God's law is good. We're not... Jesus is taking that spotlight and, and, and exposing us, uncomfortably so. Do good and you will be sons of the Most High. Do the law and God will accept you as sons. You know, Jesus, Jesus, there's a new sheriff in town, but the new sheriff in town has the old law. It's the same one. Same one. Now, if you would, if you turn to the Matthew account, the parallel account, I promise you can leave encouraged today, okay? I promise we're going there. But if you go to the Matthew account, paralleling our account, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, just before it gets better, um, you know, what's Jesus really mean? This, this Pat guy, what does he know? Um, he just seems to really be... 
sharing his feelings or opinions or something. He must have had a bad day yesterday. Or I mean, I, I don't know what you might be thinking. So let, let's have Jesus interpret Jesus. Uh, here's one for you. How about Matthew 5.48, which is parallel to what we're looking at. And he says there, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Have a nice day. <laughs> oh, perfect can't mean perfect, commentators sometimes say. They just couldn't be perfect because if it meant perfect, like perfect moral law-keeping which would be the context, um, th- that would mean we're all condemned. And we know Jesus is nice and not mean and, you know, all this kind of thing. And well, I would suggest to you that the ba- best way to take it is perfect. Especially in the context. Just be just like God morally and it will be good. We are so ready, on the edge of the cliff ready, if we're really grappling with that kind of thing, for the gospel, it's not even funny. Perfect moral standards. Absolutely perfect. Now we're ready for a substitute. Now we're ready for a mediator. Since you're still in Matthew 5, I hope, and you haven't gone back, this helps us to understand even the way Jesus opened this up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. 17 and 18 of chapter 5. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. You know, Don't think that I'm giving you something other than Moses gave you. Notice he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Aha, now we're, that, that, that's gospel territory. That's good news territory. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not, not an iota, not a dot, not even a little tiny marking will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And notice it's tied to him fulfilling it, him accomplishing it. That's great, awesome, magnificent gospel territory. So in the context, bigger picture, he's already introduced himself as the hero. He's already introduced himself as where you, where you find hope, where I find hope and we're ready to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfiller of love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's gospel. That Jesus would do that perfectly. That's gospel. We trust in Him. What does God require of you? Perfection. How can he do that? He's the creator. Doesn't change the rules mid-game. It's not going to happen. Sends his son coming here to do it for us. That's good news. Law is not good news. Law is bad news. Jesus, gospel, good news. They're ready to understand that. I'm ready to understand that. I hope you're ready to understand that. Then I'm ready for, how about 1 Peter 3.18? 1 Peter 3.18, to give us the other side after the cross, after all the work is done, just giving us uh, interpretations of what happened, theological interpretation of what happened. For Christ also suffered for sins. The righteous, righteous is law-keeping. Righteous is loving your neighbor. Okay, that's law talk. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 
then we, we, we say that is so helpful interpreting theologically for us what he did and saying the same thing. Jesus comes on the scene. You've heard it said, I say to you, you just do the right thing and everything will be fine for you. Well, that exposes us as people who don't do the right thing. And then Jesus comes to fulfill the law and the righteous, the law keeper for the unrighteous, the lawbreakers. Moral of the story, boys and girls, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the answer. He's the key. We boast in Him, not in ourselves. We trust in Him, not in ourselves. If you want to go back to Luke, maybe maybe one other passage in Luke about this. And, and I went there last time in Matthew's account. But if you would turn to Luke chapter 10, can't leave this alone because it's it's so crucial that we get this we, we stand before him guilty he requires the same thing he's always required the same thing the, the requirement has never changed I, I i so desperately want you to be uh, armed is too harsh of a word equipped with, with getting this, so you can explain it to a five-year-old and you can explain it to a 75-year-old, 85-year-old, and everyone in between to so get this that you own it yourself. It's, it's pierced your heart. You've been slain. Only to then trust in Christ by His grace. But then to, to so get this that you can communicate this way and you can help people who need to be helped because, again, the common understanding so many times, even in churchianity, is it used to be hard, now it's easy. And if we just try hard during the easy time, because Jesus made it easy, so if we're just good people, we get in. Just follow the be happy attitudes, Right? I'm not happy because the requirement hasn't changed under Jesus' watch. So Luke chapter 10 helps us with this. Just to, just to see it right from Jesus. If you, if you only mark in your Bible like once or twice a year, it would be a good place to, to put a marker. Uh, and, and 1025, I don't know what I'm going to do when we get here because I've, I've already talked about it so many times. But anyway, you'll forget, and so will I. So verse 25. And, and, be, and behold, a lawyer stood... Watch out for those guys, right? Um, now, these are like tech... These guys are law, lawyers in the law sense of God's holy law, right? Stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Okay, you threw me that ball trying to trick me. I'm going to bounce the ball back to you. But I did direct your attention to what the law says because it's the standard under Jesus' watch and under Moses' watch. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. We know that he gives the right answer because that's the same answer that Jesus gives elsewhere. He hits it spot on. So just follow, follow what he's saying. What should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds and says, well, what does the law say? He quotes it back to Jesus, the essence of the law. And then it says in verse 28, and he said to him, and Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. 
Do this and you will live. I so badly want you to get that. Jesus totally affirms it. He doesn't say, well, just pray the sinner's prayer. Um, Not that there isn't a place for that, okay? But but what he doesn't do is he doesn't say, because by the way, if you're going to pray the sinner's prayer, let's just put it in its best context. It's because you already understand you're slain by God's holy law because the standard is here and it didn't change to here. That's all I'm saying. Jesus didn't say, don't you realize that that was then and this is now and I'm the kinder, gentler Moses? He says the exact same thing. Exactly the same. This is what God used to require. This is what God requires. And if you do that, you have life. In the context, because he says, what should I do to gain eternal life? You have eternal life. And so in a real sense, whether you say it just like that or not, I so badly want you to say that to people. Now, you have to explain whether they know the Bible or they don't know the Bible. And you might have to put it in different ways. But when you're talking to people about what it means to have a restored relationship with God, somehow, somewhere along the way, in order for Jesus to make any sense, you've got to get it through to them that they have to be absolutely perfect or they are smoked. Or or they'll never understand why Jesus' perfect life on earth, obeying the law, matters. They'll never understand why his atonement has to be substitutionary atonement for all of our law breaking. It'll become some sort of sappy, sentimental, who knows what. He died for us because we're good people. And so work at this. I want to work at this and, and having it be clear. I won't try to say it a different way, but I don't know how to say it a different way. You just say, just get on with it, Pat. Okay, I will. But just have it riveted in your mind. Jesus didn't change the standard. It's, it's so convoluted and disjointed to think the Old Testament was about law and New Testament is about grace that it's not even funny. How did Abraham have a right relationship with God? How did he get justified? It was by faith and by faith alone. And if that wasn't by grace, I don't know how it happened. God's law, the standard, goes unchanged. And God's way of dealing with us, if we're ever saved, it's only ever been by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, ultimately, whether you're on the other side of the cross looking forward or on our side of the cross looking backward. We've just got to own this. got to be perfect that's why first john 2 1 is great it says jesus christ the righteous that is to say jesus christ the law keeper because that's how righteousness is used oh yes yes jesus christ the law keeper oh that makes tons of sense because i'm required to keep the law He's the law keeper. I cling to him so when God sees me, he doesn't see me for who I really am. He sees me in Christ. He sees me united to Christ. He sees me as if I were the law keeper, as if I'd loved God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if I'd, as if I'd love my neighbor as myself, true meaning being fleshed out, even loving my enemies. Oh, it's so awesome. That's why 
why we love Christ. It's why we worship Him. The law should have a ministry to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 says, The law has a ministry. It's a ministry of death. Ah, it just doesn't bring life. It brings death. Not because it's bad, but because we are doing the wrong thing. So please know when you hear Jesus say, Do, 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 do. He's right in doing so because that's the standard. But that's the law's standard, not the gospel standard. What we want to have clear in our minds is the gospel is Jesus did it. When we say gospel is do, 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 that's a do-do gospel. That's what that is. That's what that is. The law has every right to say that. The gospel never says that. It says done done isn't it good it's good isn't it (laughs) it is so good okay well we've all been slain now we need to go past number two through the passage remember there's different people there and even the same people are dealing with different things at different times second pass we're going to see the other side of the blade if you will God's holy law slays us. But God's holy law also has a positive ministry in our lives as believers. Okay? As an unbeliever, the only ministry it has that's positive is it shows me my sin. That's positive. But it's a minister of death. But then you see Jesus for who He is and His perfect work and you trust in Him only by His great and sovereign grace and you're a believer now, a true kind of disciple. And then God's holy law has application for you as someone who already belongs to Him as if you are a law keeper even though you're not because Christ is your perfect law keeper. But now you want to grow. Now you want to do the right things in response. And now you want to do the right things because of what Christ has done. And guess what? God uses His law to guide you and direct you. Christians now for a long, 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 long time have seen and acknowledged the Bible uses the law in different ways. God uses the law in different ways depending on where you are. Are you in Christ or not? And once you're in Christ, now it's not a ministry of condemnation that it plays. It doesn't slay you, though it might still show us how much we need Jesus. It guides you. It directs you. You say, I want to do the right thing. I know I can't do it perfectly. Christ has done that for me. But now that I belong to Him by His grace, I I want to do the right things. Guide me, direct me. And I think this is a great, great illustration of what we see here. Someone put it this way. While it still exposes our shortcomings, the law, as believers... And therefore, need for Christ's perfect law-keeping in our place, it does more than that. The law of God guides the believer. This is my part. I'm quoting myself because I don't want to get this wrong. So, uh, I just have to look at my notes for a second. The law of God guides the believer in his or her conduct so that by the power of the Spirit, we follow his commands and live spiritually healthy lives. That's a different kind of ministry in our lives. 
We read Psalm 119 on purpose because I thought that would be a good, good point of reference. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to the law. Psalm 119, I think it's 9 and following. Maybe 11. You go, yeah, that's right. How, how can I, as a Christian person, do the right thing? How can I know what's right? I follow the law of God. It doesn't all apply to all of us because we're not under the law that was given to Israel and those kinds of things. But still, if it's the command of God to love Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, that applies to you. And that doesn't condemn you anymore. It guides you and it helps you. And now if Jesus is talking to believers, and it's a mixed lot, it's a guide to them. It's bringing spiritual health to them. And I think we need to make sure we take this second pass through. So let's do that. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. All counterintuitive, difficult, challenging. How in the world can I do this? Well, it's not meant to be for normal people. When it comes to actually doing these things, they're disciples of Jesus. He's equipping them and he's going to send them out. And when you go out and people curse at you because of the good news you're telling them, and, be, and, and you, people are harsh and mean and reject you, don't return the favor. That wouldn't be what I would do, and I'm sending you out as my disciples. You're my representatives. He's even named them apostles. And so when you go out, you conduct yourselves as God's holy law would tell you to conduct yourself. Loving them. Kindness. Genuineness. And when they wrong you, don't wrong them back. Don't act, how about this? Don't act like normal people. Eye for an eye. Act extra normal. <laughs> and then he says in verse 29, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And by the way, strikes you on the cheek, it's probably not a punch in the face. A strike on the cheek is probably slap in the face and now you put it in a greater context of first century Middle East in light of Jesus equipping them to send them out probably I wouldn't want to die for this probably in relationship to being insulted for your beliefs and your message and your convictions a religious kind of thing disrespect they slap you in the face what do you do you turn the other cheek. When someone punches you in the face, by the way, typically it doesn't lead to the other cheek being exposed. But when they slap you in the face, now the image fits even better. When people, now let's apply this to us. We're not the 12 and we're not the bigger group there and we're not on the, on, on the set. But this is applicable to you if you're a believer. When you're 
insulted and when you're wronged, when someone disses you, we might say, or not, you don't return the favor. Let's make this real practical. This happens to you by unbelievers. You tell them the truth and an unbeliever insults you. That would be the concept here. You don't return the favor with an insult. He's going to get to the rationale later. But now he's just telling us the reality. So your unbelieving parents, grandparents, friends, children, grandchildren, co-workers insult you reject you, are harsh and mean to you, more than likely because of your relationship to Christ, how do you respond? It would be normal for you and for me to respond, turn about as fair play. He says, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm going to get to why Jesus is saying, but, but, but don't do that. But this is real for you. This is real for me. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. There's the golden rule. Jesus didn't call it that, but we've been calling it that for some time now. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners, even people who are stereotypically bad and against God, love those who love them. I mean, that's just normal for that to happen. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Verse 34, and if you lend to those whom you respect to receive, from whom those you respect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Especially there at the end, you have the rationale. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're sent out representing Him and His message. And you may be rejected, maligned, wronged, taken advantage of, even in your acts of kindness, which you're supposed to show, right? Take it. You take it. Why? Because that's how God is. And you belong to God now. If you're a disciple of Jesus, a true disciple of Jesus. This is how God is. What do we deserve? We, we deserve Jesus with that sword in his mouth a long time ago. Not in the future in Revelation 19. We deserve to be slain. All of us. Not just so we see our need for Jesus, but because we're just guilty. What does God do? He says what God does at the end there. Your Father is merciful. God has been withholding His fair judgment. 
See, when people wrong you, it's fair that you return the favor. It's just. It's righteous. But remember, you belong to God by His grace, and according to His mercy, He's not giving people what they deserve. He's been holding it back. And now here you are, trusting in Jesus, and you say, I belong to Jesus. I'm an apostle, these guys could say. They've got to act like God acts. Kind, gracious, even to enemies. With sarcasm, I can say, I'm just so glad this has no application in our lives. (laughs) Well, it does, because Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, to his disciples. So we've got to think in terms of, how how does God act? And we belong to him now, according to his grace, and and he acts mercifully. And, and, And in fact, he even gives. In the Matthew account, he does send the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So when someone insults you and maligns your character and an unbeliever just rips you, what's fair and right is for you to rip them. But here's a true application of, even though it's abused a lot, what would Jesus do? turn the other cheek so at Christmas time when things are a disaster because you belong to Christ and others don't or Easter time and the family gatherings you just got to know that unbelievers are unbelievers and God was merciful to you and God was gracious to you imitate God not for salvation but because of salvation, because you belong to Him, now the law of God, this is nothing shy of the law of God. He's just expanding and elaborating on what that looks like in application. Because He's unpacking love your neighbor. Now the law of God is a light unto your path. It's not taking you out at the knees. It's guiding you so you can walk safely and even grow spiritually. The law of God is helping you to do that. The instruction, the commands of God. So we would want to prayerfully apply this to the little things in life when people wrong us in small ways, but then the big ways too. And we can only prayerfully apply it. Here's how I work. A lot of times on the trivial level, I try really hard to be nice to people. You know, I, I, my parents weren't perfect, but, you know, it doesn't cost any more to say please and thank you, my dad said, all the time. So I say please and thank you all the time. Hold the door open for somebody. You know, just like basic kinds of manners. I don't mean Christian things, just basic things. But I'll do it. I'll open the door for somebody and, you know, be nice and let them in. And most of the time they're so shocked. They're like, oh, thank you. But sometimes they don't say that. And in my heart, I'm just like, you're such a jerk. You know, what kind of parents did you have? Right? 
I just did something nice to you. You didn't even say thank you. I hate you. You know, I mean, that's how I think, right? You do too. Just being honest. That, and that's super trivial. But on a trivial level, wronged, 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 wronged. Our God is wronged at every turn. We belong to Him by faith in His Son. So now we're in the business of imitating Him and trying to be like Him. We don't get that turned on its head and think that's to gain salvation. But it's because of salvation. Now on the bigger level, the real level, where unbelievers malign you, gossip and say all kinds of things about you that aren't true. Sometimes physical things, not so much here these days. They're acting according to their nature. Just like you used to act according to your nature. Doesn't mean you can't tell them what they're doing is wrong. It doesn't mean you can't share the law of God with them so that perhaps by God's grace they might see themselves as slain by it, needing Christ as a Savior. But you don't return the favor, that's all. It's super applicable for us. Let's, let's stop there and, and, and move forward. Father, thank you this morning for you know, the way you use your, your commands Thank you that Jesus spoke the truth and he did so profoundly and lovingly and compassionately, compellingly. We're thankful to be able to be on his side, those of us who are. And we pray for those who aren't that they might really see uh, Jesus for who he really is and they might really see themselves for who they really are, standing condemned before you. And Lord, now we're, we're thankful to be able to do what you've commanded us to do in light of the gospel, and that is to eat bread and drink wine in remembrance of you, in remembrance of Jesus Christ, the righteous, in remembrance of Jesus Christ, the law keeper. We're so thankful that you're helping us to understand this. We're so thankful that he's done what he's done for us, and that it wasn't just a theological truth, but it was a genuine truth act of love that occurred in real time and real space. So help us to, to observe uh, this sacred practice of eating and drinking in remembrance of Jesus and to do so um, with hearts that are worshipful and in awe of you. In Jesus' name, amen.